1: Welcome again to Next Step Leadership Podcast. Uh, Chris Maxwell and Tracy Reynolds uh, enjoying our conversations with each other and with dear friends. Um, Tracy, it's nice uh, being able to talk with Margaret Turner again, and I'm uh, mm-hmm. um, just a smile, and I remember our conversations with her uh, long ago, um, time has gone by, but seeing where God has taken mm-hmm. her and Rick, and also sort of dreaming with them and and praying with them as we see where God will be taking them in the future. Uh, Yeah, it's exciting. It's a joy to
0: reconnect. Uh, It's fun to watch what God is doing for the lives of people. You hear their embryonic visions and what they want to do. And I will say that in in Maggie's case, she's not wavered from that. Uh, She and Rick uh, were I like fell in love in college and got married and and have just been moving into this life. And so we are looking forward to carrying on this conversation and hearing more from you, Maggie. Welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me again, guys.
0: Well, you after you got out of college, you guys got married. You met. You guys met in college, right?
2: We met the first week of my freshman year in line in the cafeteria. Man,
0: cue the violins. The, I, Wait a yeah, okay. Cue the violin. Okay, yeah. well,
2: this, this, I don't know, y'all probably don't even know this. Rick introduced himself, and I introduced myself as Margaret, which my family has always called me Margaret. My mom didn't allow nicknames. And he says, that's kind of long. Can I call you Maggie? And I was just like, sure, dude. I just met. Call me Maggie. (laughs) And literally, you know, Emmanuel's a small school. I mean, when I was a freshman, the whole student body was probably 750, Mm -hmm. maybe 800 students. And within a week, every person on campus was calling me Maggie. (laughs) And so I I was stuck with it. (laughs) That's
0: awesome. Now I feel great. You know? <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's incredible. So you met him in the first week and but I mean and you guys uh, obviously developed friendship uh, and you got uh, I mean did college together, got degrees together, then got married together.
2: Yes, a week after I graduated. <laughs> I graduated yeah. on May 10th and we got married on May 17th. Wow
0: that's a cool thing. Well, along that journey, you guys made some critical decisions based out of your convictions in life and started this foster care journey. Tell us about that whole thing with children and how the, how that's gone.
2: So, I had told Rick when we were dating that I, you know, I always wanted to adopt and he said that, you know, that was something that he was really interested to And so when we were first married, you know, the plan was like maybe have a couple bio kids, then maybe adopt later. And I actually went to Catalyst, the conference in Atlanta with you guys one year, and Francis Chan preached this message about making decisions. That were in line with God's will and God's word, but that most people really wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And when He was talking, I was just crying. It was like suddenly I knew, like we were going to adopt our first kid, and um, I just had this sense, like I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to be a mom. And we actually didn't foster; um, we actually adopted internationally um, our our son Grady. We had we had done some short term mission work. Um, with some partners at Emmanuel in Ethiopia and Kenya. And we just loved Ethiopia as a country. We love the people. We love the culture. We love the coffee. We love the weather. It's so much cooler than Kenya and a lot of the other East African countries. But we um, we adopted our our oldest from Ethiopia and um, then found out we were pregnant like two months after we got home. So we had two little boys back-to-back Uh and then uh, we had our daughter Judah a couple years after that. Wow! And we are so tired. I don't know that there will be a fourth. <laughs> well,
1: it's always so good uh, to see them each time. I each time I see you guys as a family and see the children, I think of, of what you guys um, are showing them uh, the love of Christ as uh, from a parent perspective, and and I'm very proud of you and Rick and and what you guys are doing and. So, uh, tell us a little more of the story of of why you care so much and want to help so many people around the world.
2: So, I I knew that I wanted to work inside of that space that was addressing human trafficking. Um, My pastor's son, AJ, worked for the International Justice Mission when um, I was growing up, and I didn't really know what human trafficking looked like in the states. I just had that international perspective, and I just I I, I was I definitely felt drawn to that. But when I left Southern Wesleyan, I did not really know what I was going to do next. I had had Judah, and so we had three kids, and we had just decided for me to take a year off to kind of figure out <laughs> figure out the parenting of three kids thing but in that space I I knew that I wanted to shift back to nonprofit or something social justice oriented cuz my role at Southern Wesleyan had been much more administrative it wasn't ministry focused I mean it was ministry I mean it's a Christian college and I had the opportunity to lead You know Bible studies, and but my role there was more administrative and focused on retention, and I just missed the primary focus of my job being addressing you know those social issues, getting students or getting others involved in the marginalized, hurting communities. And so, a job opened up with a nonprofit in Greenville, South Carolina, called Switch where I was able to build and lead the state's first jail intervention program for survivors Mm -hmm. of trafficking. So when I got into that role, I didn't really know what it looked like from the states. And obviously it looks very different from country to country, but what I learned in that role was that Human trafficking in the United States looks on its face like prostitution. Hmm. It does not look like babies in cages. It does not look like children being handcuffed in basements. Not that there's not ever trafficking that has that level of force to it. But what trafficking most often looks like in the States is a 13, 14-year-old girl getting removed from her house because there's been abuse or there's been neglect, there's been problems at home, maybe there's a parent incarcerated already, there's poverty, and then a trafficker comes along who already knows that this girl has experienced abuse, neglect, not had her emotional needs met, and takes a year to become the best boyfriend he's you know he she could possibly imagine buys her expensive things gets her nails done tells her he loves her that they're going to be a family and then after grooming for that period of time 6 months 8 months a year even longer sometimes then there's that i need you to do something for me i need you to you know make some money for our family and this is the way that i want you to do it and in those cases when you have a 13 14 year old that's been groomed that way there's compliance there's well yeah I don't want to lose this because this is actually feels better than the abuse and neglect I've experienced at home and so people don't understand sometimes when I say that these girls who are trafficked sometimes they get offered help and they still run away with their trafficker again well it's because there's been that abuse and that psychological abuse that's been occurring with the grooming that Sometimes it's hard for us to understand that it could have been so bad at home or it could have been so bad with our foster family that that is preferable. But um, that is what trafficking looks like more often than not. And so many of the women that I helped who were adults told me that they were first exploited as kids. Mm. And most of them also had experience in the child welfare system, had experienced foster care at some point or had experienced the juvenile delinquency side so there had been involvement um there and so um in just learning those things I, I knew that that was a hole in in services not to mention that these women never had good legal help once right. when they were in jail with public defenders who wouldn't speak to them till the day of court or once they got out and had all these things on their record that were related the like, prostitution charges, or all these charges of things that they were made to do when they were being mm-hmm. trafficked. And so those two things combined is what really led us to to start Illuminate Justice, which is a nonprofit that's focused on prevention efforts, particularly mm-hmm. with our kids who are impacted by the child welfare system.
0: Wow. I love your heart for um, preventing... That we talked a little bit off mic about it's not that, well, it, it's always difficult to, to procure funds, but it's less challenging to procure funds for some kind of treatment program. But prevention, uh, which you would just think logically, oh my gosh, this is where we need to, to, to do, the, you know, the, but we feel like we're robbing from one to do the other. Talk about that tension and why prevention.
2: Yeah, so we have a big need in the state to identify kids who have been trafficked. And that is almost the exclusive priority in Georgia right now is identifying kids who actually have experienced exploitation to make sure we're getting them appropriate services, which Mm. that doesn't need to stop and we need more of it. But if we don't pair that with strategic prevention efforts, actually educating kids about how traffickers groom their tactics, the the things that they use, then the problem is just going to keep growing and growing and growing. If we compare survivor services with prevention efforts, we're going to see less kids. Because something we say all the time is, the eye cannot see what the mind does not know. So Mm -hmm. if a kid doesn't know that people would take a full year to get to know them and try and get them to fall in love before they ask them to have sex for money then they they just don't see it but if you tell them you know when they're 6th grade 7th grade there are people out there who want to trick you into this and they will go to all kinds of links they will buy you stuff but their their goal is like abuse their goal is to exploit you then when that person comes along that's in their mind and sometimes their situation might be so bad they you know Not all of them are not going to get, you know, prevention... That's another thing with the securing finances for prevention is we can never know how many kids don't get trafficked. Mm, like The right. data that we have is on what students learn when they go through prevention education classes. We don't know the number of kids mm-hmm. who now will not be trafficked. But we know that it's worth doing. We know that prevention education is effective in changing mindsets of students mm-hmm. and helping them see those earlier red flags and talking with adults when they see those red flags. So that that that's our goal, is to help the state <laughs> and help churches, help our community see that prevention efforts are absolutely necessary if we want to keep kids safe.
1: Well, what, what can we do? I mean, by we, I mean those who are involved in churches and in schools. You're educating us today. You're educating our audience. How can we respond? What can we do about this?
2: Yeah, so the biggest way that everybody can help with this problem is to choose to personally not use anything that perpetuates the problem, and that includes solicitation, and that includes pornography. And that's something that we don't really talk about in churches the way we should. Um, But solicitation and pornography are equally um, culpable in perpetuating sex trafficking. In fact, most of our exploitation of juveniles is happening online and in video today, not necessarily in person. So kids are actually being... Exploited to create content for pornography, and so and there's also adult women, you know, and adult men who are being exploited uh, to produce pornography. So when we think about that problem, we have to all make that personal commitment to not do the things that perpetuate the yeah. problem. And you know, everyone's like, "Oh, well, nobody in church solicits." Well, that's not true, and we we need to we need to talk about that and um, talk about some of the you know, the misnomers that go with that, you know, that pe- there are just empowered people who choose prostitution. Well, that's not actually true either because most women who are voluntarily involved in prostitution were sexually exploited mm-hmm. as children or abused as children. And um, so that's the first thing. But the second thing is making safe spaces for those vulnerable kids in our mm-hmm. churches, in our you know we're starting a blog i mentioned to this off mic but we are having a couple write a year-long blog who has embarked on the very courageous and adventurous uh job of fostering teens and so we just want to encourage other believers who are thinking about that to get equipped Mm -hmm. for the practical and the spiritual and um, that connecting with with kids of that age. So we want to make sure that we're empowering believers to to foster and to care for kids who are coming from really tough places. Mm. You know, that sounds like something, oh, well, yeah, we should do that. But when you have that kid who's really Mm -hmm. difficult in your youth group and you don't know what to do with them... Preparing and like getting mentors for them, and still making youth group a safe place for kids mm-hmm. who have problems, is is a huge part of it too.
0: Yeah, I, I'm hearing several different things. I'm thinking about uh, student ministries that are providing safe places by by training, uh, by vetting their their volunteers, but also by helping them understand that we we're an accepting place. We want uh, kids that are going, because every kid's going through some level of pain, but we want to yeah. make a safe space for them, a safe space for them to, to feel and, and to, a place where you can trust the adults and helping them to di- differentiate between someone you could trust or you couldn't trust so they are making better decisions, but the support of that, as well as, I just believe as you s- were talking about uh, fostering, that there are people listening to this podcast that need to prayerfully consider and follow through with the Lord's leading to foster. Uh, so that, that would be uh, specifically. So taking responsibility personally to not endorse or be engaged in anything that helps the profiteering of and the exploitation uh, involved, but also to, to do some specific things in church world, uh, but maybe in my private world. Um, what What more?
2: <laughs> so um, sharing of your finances is a thing too. I think you know sharing your time, your your resources, um, that's a big thing. There are uh, orgs that are doing amazing things in terms of prevention and survivor services. Um, So investing in that, not everybody is called to start a nonprofit and not everybody is equipped to foster a teen who's really difficult, but everybody um, can be sharing of, uh, of money and time uh, to some of these different efforts. So that would be another thing. And just educating yourself. We, we live in a culture where there's just a lot of misinformation out there you know i always see on facebook they're stealing babies from the walmart and this is human trafficking today and that's just not the. That's- that's not what's happening. Um, that's kidnapping. That's not right. human trafficking. Um, so just educating yourself. There's a book that I read before I decided to make the plunge into law school called A Piece of Cake by Cupcake Brown. And it's a woman who was trafficked as a young kid. And again, it was, she was in foster care. It's such a realistic portrayal of mm-hmm. what trafficking in the States look like. So it's very helpful. Um, but she... Her story is just really cool because she got addicted to drugs when she was being exploited as a kid and dealt with addiction a good Mm. part of her life and then actually ended up going to law school Mm. uh, after she got sober. So it's a very, very empowering, encouraging story, not just for people wanting to learn more about trafficking, but even for people who've dealt with addiction and trauma before.
0: Well, tell us a bit more about Illuminate Justice. Tell us about your initiative and what you guys are doing.
2: Yeah, so I want to tell this story because I, it, this is kind of like the place where it began. So I, I told you guys in the last episode that I wanted to be a lawyer, and then you know we ended up ministering in a city with no law school, so law school wasn't on the table. But when I first started working at the nonprofit doing the jail intervention program for trafficking survivors, one of my first weeks on the job, I went to court with one of the survivors. She had a court date. And of course, her public defender had not talked with her at all. But I had been talking with her you know, all week about what had been going on. And so I actually got the opportunity in her hearing to talk with the judge about her participation in our program and the services that we were willing to offer when she got out. And she actually got, in that moment, time served, so she was she got released, which she was not expecting at all. Um, and I wasn't expecting it either, but I just experience such a high. I called Rick and I told him this has been the best day of my professional mm. career ever. No offense, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> there was lots of good years that he made in college, but that being in the courtroom, I just felt like a new person. Wow. And I still at that point, you know, we Our church hadn't imploded yet. I was thinking we were South Carolina for life. There was no law school to go to. But I was thinking, man, even though I didn't get to go to law school, I get to still be in the courtroom and do this amazing work of advocating for these women to get really fair and just outcomes. And it's just so crazy to think where we are now with starting Illuminate Justice because I'm getting ready to be in the courtroom with women, for real, as (laughs) on the attorney side. And um, so we started Illuminate Justice, Rick and I, and several of our colleagues from South Carolina, actually, that were were leading different parts of the movement, the anti-trafficking movement. And um, we've added a couple of Georgia, other Georgia board members, too. But we really just want to focus on those those issues that I mentioned previously, is getting our, our welfare... Um, getting getting child welfare professionals across the state to implement trafficking prevention education with our, our teens in foster care, and our teens in juvenile court, too, because those mm-hmm. kids get preyed upon, too. There's other stuff going on with our kids who are in and out of committing crimes and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But then to also be able to do free legal services for survivors. So our plan is to start doing pro bono for survivors as soon as as soon as soon I'm able to do it, as soon wow. as um, technically I can um, do some stuff in partnership with another attorney before mm-hmm. I get my bar results. So by January when I'm graduated, I, we should be able to do, start taking at least one case at a time. And um, we want to grow. I would love for us to be a hub for the whole Southeast, every state that touches Georgia, because once Georgia starts implementing prevention education as a state, we want to see South Carolina do it. We want to see North Carolina do it, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee. And um, I think that we... Our growth, I think, will happen in tandem with having a legal clinic. We, mm-hmm. like I said, there hasn't been as much. There's not as much interest in prevention efforts in a donor perspective and mm-hmm. in a professional perspective. Not as many people want training in, in prevention. Mm-hmm. So I think that as we start serving survivors with those free legal pieces, that will create a little bit more momentum mm-hmm. to fund um, the prevention work that we also want to do.
1: Well, that's so good, and we're proud Thank of you. you. Um, Tracy will include all of the links and and the information and provide that. But uh, thank you for being with us. And again, uh, we believe God's going to continue doing great things through you and through Rick as we're all learning to make sure that our next steps are our best steps.
0: Thanks for joining us on Next Step Leadership, a weekly conversation dedicated to your personal growth and leadership development. Chris and I are so glad you joined us. You can find us on your favorite podcast providers. Do us a favor and hit subscribe. And if you really want to help us, give us a rating. We so appreciate your support. Check out our show notes for more information regarding guest contact information. Tracy Reynolds' new book, Second Chair Leadership, How to Serve, Thrive, and Lead from Where You Play, is available now at ctracyrentals.com or Amazon. Chris Maxwell's 11th book, Equilibrium, 31 Ways to Stay Balanced on Life's Uneven Services, is available now at chrismaxwell.me or Amazon. Where you can find all of Chris's previous books as well. Our featured music is by Casual Americans. You can find their musical releases at casualamericans.com or your favorite music supplier. We release Next Step Leadership each Thursday, so join us again next week on The Next Step Journey, a conversation dedicated to helping you make your next step your best step.